Proceed. Hi, folks. This is the first of a series of podcasts that me, Kate Carruthers, and Annie Parker are hosting with uh, some interesting women. And our first guest is Carol Duncan, who's a former ABC and commercial radio broadcaster. Uh, she's currently an elected Newcastle City Councillor, and she works as a multimedia content producer for several clients. And one of the important premises of this show is that we drink booze while we have chat with interesting women. So, ladies, what are you drinking? Well, um, I, I have a really healthy glass of uh, red wine. It's a Malbec. Uh, it's Argentinian. It's one of my favourites. And I, too, have a Malbec uh, by the McGuigan family, fourth generation, the Hunter Valley Vignerons, and it's, um, it's very delicious. It is perhaps today's daily fruit allowance, but anyway. <laughs> oh, I'm, I've failed because I've only got gin and tonic. Oh, that's not... Yes. Gin is, gin is never a failure, Kate. It keeps the mosquitoes away or something, doesn't it? It does something. It's it's probably probably my it's probably my fruit allotment for the day too. So I wanted to um, first of all just ask you one question, Carol, and it's what is the one thing that you will never do again? <laughs> the one thing that I will never do again. Um, I once had a really bad chicken kebab in Hobart. This would be nearly 30 years ago now when I started my commercial radio career um, and, and long before going to the ABC. And uh, that, that was the chicken kebab that nearly killed me. That came from uh, Sandy Bay. And I lived on um, Zupa Dupas, you know, the long skinny ice blocks, mm -hmm. for about the next four or five days. It was, I, I am suspicious of pre-prepared chicken products to this day. Hmm. Wow, that is, hmm. how long ago was that again? That would have been about 1990, 91. So, you know, look, I'm traumatized. <laughs> wow, that, that's a long trauma to be carrying. Yeah, I know. I, I, I go to the supermarket and I look at things like chicken sausages and I think, oh, chicken sausages would be so good. Like, I bet they're really good, but I just, Mm, it's like turducken, you know, who puts the turd in the uchen, as they say in the classes, when you stuff an animal inside another animal inside another animal. To me, that's just like, no, that's, that's bacteria upon bacteria upon bacteria. So chicken sausages, to me, are a little bit like, you know, what have you got mashed up in there? Well, look, as, as a, a vegetarian, predominantly vegetarian, uh, for the last at least 20 years. Yeah. Solidarity, sister, I'm with you. Yeah, you're feeling it, aren't you? <laughs> Sorry about that. So my question, um, mm. so we do this at the beginning of each of these podcasts. We ask a couple of really random questions. Um, the usual question I ask is, what's the question that no one ever asks you that you wish they would? But I'm going to rephrase it for you. Okay. What's, what are the questions that you're being asked right now that you feel are super inappropriate and really unreasonable? Um, I guess 
some of those come to my current role as a city councillor, which is an enormous privilege. privilege. And it's, it's not something that I ever thought that I would do. But after leave, a few years after leaving the ABC, um, some friends said to me, you've always worked within the community. This seems like an obvious thing. Why don't you put your hand up? And I did and got elected. Um, and, and on the one hand, I really love it. On the other hand, it has lots of challenges that I think are unfair and unreasonable of anybody who is trying to do this sort of work, not, not just me. Um, but I, I, I think after a long media career and a long career where you are working in, in public, in radio, um, particularly in one city, you know, I, earlier in my career, I worked in lots of different cities, Sydney, Canberra, I came from Sydney originally, uh, Canberra and Hobart and then came here. And I've, I've been working here in radio for a long time. Um, and I think that sort of public career gives you the most incredible experiences. It gives you the best and worst of things. Um, the, the experiences that you have and the things that I'm able to, to offer to my children who are now essentially adults and the people that they get to know and talk to. Um, my battery just ran out. Is that terrible? On my light. Yeah, no, carry on. Too okay. Um, uh, so there are great privileges that, that, that come with that in that, you know, I, I grew up thinking that only other people went to university, only other people travelled overseas. Um, you know, nobody in my family had ever done that. My children are growing up having um, scientists as their friends and people that they know and musicians as their friends and people that they know and they're getting to travel and they're getting to do lots of the things that... Um, that I, I never did. And, and I kind of want them to take that for granted a little bit. But one of the things that I find most difficult at this point is not so much a question. It's people uh, making decisions on my behalf. And that particularly pertains to um, trying to change a career, trying to reinvent myself after a long public media career. And... Um, the answers that I most commonly receive are we didn't think you'd be interested, we can't afford you, and you're overqualified. And if you applying for new roles, Carol? Applying for, for new, new roles, that's right. Um, it's actually much easier for me to be working in Sydney, and I did the commute, as I'm sure Kate's aware, for a substantial period of, of last year up until the bushfires affected my family. Um, but you, you, it is very easy to become typecast. So in, in Newcastle, which I, I love this city and region and the community, uh, my children are Novocastrians, but I'm typecast as radio. And right. to this day, I get asked, when are you going back on air? Um, I'm not, <laughs> at least I don't think so. I have no intentions to at this stage. Um, but that's, that's really hard, you know? And I think a lot of women get to this age, I'm 54, and, and finding, you know, coming back from having children or changing careers is really difficult for women anyway. We're still not doing a good job of it. We, we like to talk about it a lot. And I, I heard uh, question time today in the federal parliament, there was a lot of uh, discussion in the government bigging themselves up about all the amazing things that they, they have done and are doing for, for working women. Um, but we've got a long way to go. Yeah. 
we've got a long way to go. And by the way, I'm I'm not going to hold my breath for how long that list was that was perhaps presented in Parliament today. I didn't listen. Yeah. I'm going to guess it wasn't long. Um, well, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, how many billions of dollars have been spent on uh, various things from, from which... Uh, women benefit, but of course, the decision to end uh, free childcare um, at this point in time, when the workforce has been um, absolutely brutalised by this pandemic, that for anybody to get any sort of work at all um, is is you know we need to help and support people get any employment that they can at the moment, and who knows how long for? But we don't know what the other side of this is going to look like. We don't. And, you know, I've been arguing for years, I don't even have kids, but I think uh, free and available childcare is a fundamental productivity driver for the country. And I can't understand why other people just don't agree with me, because I'm obviously right. about. <laughs> I have no doubt. It's odd, isn't it? It's, it's, re- it's really odd. I was um, interviewed this morning um, by some people up here are doing some wonderful short documentaries on local history stories up here. And they wanted to talk to me about a few things, but one of them was a, a pair of sisters uh, from the uh, early 19th century who uh, were born in Sydney but to, to a well-off family but came to live on Ash Island, which is the middle of the Hunter River. And um, these two women, the Scott sisters, Harriet and Helena, were incredible natural history illustrators and they illustrated books for their father primarily um, and it was only really when they came up here to live on ash island that they were able to freely do that because this is you know 1830 or 50 or whatever it was and and for women to work was just not the done you know you just didn't do that let alone do it for any sort of wage and, and these two women, when they completed that first book for their father, which is in, in its field, um, and now they are held in high regard by the Australian Museum, um, who hold a lot of their, their artworks, um, they were only 19 and 21 when they finished this book for their father with these hundreds of um, illustrations of Australian <laughs> moths and butterflies. It's such an area of minutiae. Um, but these, these two young women were, uh, the family were the Scots, of course, involved in the Mitchell Library, um, and uh, Rose, who was another uh, early Australian feminist and campaigner for equal rights. When their father died, of course, that was it. There was, there was no money. And the girls, the young women at that stage, um, really had a difficult time of it and they ended up going back to Sydney and having to work as illustrators and there is correspondence from these two women to the Australian Museum or to whoever was commissioning them to work um, saying please don't say that we're doing it and that you are paying me to do this for you and one of the sisters Harriet wrote to one of her male um long-standing friends saying, you know, this would be so much easier if I was Harry, not Harriet. And I was thinking about this morning during that conversation about, you know, in some ways we've come a long way, but in other ways, gosh, for women, we we just really haven't. There's um, a phrase, it's it's from a well-known or or very popular TV show, we don't need to talk about that, but a phrase that really sticks with me and it's called 
change and progress comes in excruciating increments excruciating and and i'm i'm 43 i remember when i first got into my career and i was talking to people about how you know they're going to be more women in technology women in leadership mm-hmm. roles boards things are going to change in my lifetime and you know that was 20 years ago and of course it's not changed mm-hmm. and, and and that's the lesson i've learned over that period of time is change does come and it will happen but it's excruciatingly slow and I wish it wasn't. It is isn't it and and I think about how as certainly as a child I was oblivious. I I grew up in a very working class family both of my parents um, worked Um, but I was I was actually quite oblivious to a lot of things, including, you know, equal rights for women, um, uh, Aboriginal Australian, you know, I'm of that generation growing up in, in Sydney, where at school, we were taught, you know, a little bit about Captain Arthur Phillip and Benelong. And, and that was really about it. We didn't learn anything about, um, you know, the brutal treatment of Indigenous Australians or of massacres. So it, it's really over the last 30 years that, you know, my own self-education in a whole lot of areas has been like, wow, I, I, I had no idea. Um, I think there's a lot of people in Australia this last week or two who are yeah. going, oh, today I learned a yeah. lot of stuff yeah. about Indigenous <laughs> people's lives. And yes, yeah, and, and that's a great thing. And um, I never criticise anybody who, including myself, who is late to the party of learning a new thing and understanding a new thing. I'm a great fan of that expression about, you know, never never make fun of somebody who mispronounces a word because they learned it by reading. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's kind of me, really. You know, <laughs> I learned it by reading. Um, and, and I think the same applies to a lot of the very difficult um, social discussions that are, are going on around us at the moment, whether it's feminism, uh, whether it's people of colour, whether it's Indigenous people. Um, I think asking questions is a really good and, and, and healthy thing because the more we know and the more we understand, um, the better off we'll all be. Mm, mm. It's fascinating, though. I've seen a lot of... Um people of colour I know on Twitter who are just playing tired of explaining stuff to white people. So it's really interesting to watch so many people wanting stuff explained to them, Mm. the true tiredness. Yes, and and I think you see that in a lot of conversations, um, uh, certainly amongst uh, disability. Um, Mm. There has been that that feeling for quite some time and and I, I i get that and i'm sympathetic to it um and i will try and and google and i will try and find the right um sources of of information um and just do the best that i can and hope that i don't cock it up too much so it's an interesting point though around and, and you know, this is to your earlier comment, Carol, and then Kate, to your you know, follow-up conversation point there around, we're, we're in a world where we know we being you know, the privileged with the white people in the world, we are privileged. We were born into, mm. we have an enormous platform of, of help that's just innately there for us. Mm. 
whilst I agree with the point that we should not be asking for anybody's help to educate us, we should be educating ourselves. But then the corollary of that, or the, the follow-on is, is we live in this world of, you know, call it cancel culture, call it... Yeah. Um, yeah, that there, there's no opportunity for the mistake. And, and I, I have a big problem with that because I'm not saying that people should be deliberately obtuse or stupid and say things that are, that are openly going to offend people. It's more just, mm. we're all in this world where we're learning and figuring things out together and, and it feels like there's no gap for people to make a mistake in Yes, yeah, that that's actually concerned me for many years in 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 different ways. Um, but you're absolutely right. I I often will see things on Twitter now that um, I might agree with, uh, but I I dare not um, retweet or share. And and I think that's I, I don't know. Maybe there, maybe there were some positives to that as well. But what you referred to there is the cancel count, the cancel culture, um, and and is accompanied by the comment, you know, gee, life comes at you fast, doesn't it? When you make a mistake, um, and and we see that so often on social media, I guess, where someone has you know made a mistake, and they they are you know perhaps they they're just no one living their life in the middle of nowhere, and they've got ten followers on Facebook, but suddenly it gets picked up and it gets amplified, and their lives are destroyed by it. You know, their lives are just destroyed, and they don't have the opportunity um, to seek grace, I guess. And, and, you know, maybe sometimes they just don't deserve it. But I have felt for a long time that we are increasingly becoming an unforgiving people. You know, how long does someone have to do the time for the crime? That's a really beautiful way of putting it around, yeah, forgiveness. And I think if we, if we accept that, for the most part, most people are asking questions or trying to learn and they're, they're mm-hmm. in is good and my assumption is that whenever I speak to a new person who perhaps is oblivious or not aware or uninformed I assume that their intentions are good now Mm. I accept as well that as a white woman you know that you're in a minority on social media though (laughs) white person I I can I have that legitimacy to say I believe that your intentions are good uh, sorry, not legitimacy, but that's the wrong word. I have the privilege of feeling that that's where everybody is coming from. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it's so hard now. And I, I worry mm. that because of this sort of soundbite culture that we live in, that we're no longer listening long enough to understand the nuances of a conversation. And frankly, just the whole world works on compromise and we, we all need to learn a little bit more about each other so that we can step one, one step closer to each other rather than feeling like we're always miles and miles apart. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this demanding an immediate response um, and immediate blowback um, is, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's but, just but a, no, a, a side effect of our always on world, isn't it? But you don't have to make an immediate response. People can want all they want. You mm. don't have to be guided by this. And I often just mm. leave things sit and come back to them the next day and stuff. 
mm. because I can't formulate a response on the on the spot that yeah. is yeah. prudent and reasonable. <laughs> I I deal with this regularly now in my role as an elected councillor. And as I mentioned earlier, it's it's a role that I, I love. It's a great it's a great privilege, you know. <laughs> Who would have ever thought? Um, it's interesting when you have those little wins when you're actually able to help people in your community with their, their problems or you know that's great. And the business of being involved in running a big city, Newcastle's the seventh largest city in the country. It's endlessly fascinating yes it's roads rates rubbish and all of those things but it's so much more than that um that is such a privilege i I was up visiting newcastle uni earlier this year when we were still allowed out and i was i was really captured by the sense that they're really trying to reinvent themselves beyond fossil fuel sort of stuff Oh, my goodness, yes. We are the world's largest coal export port, as I'm sure that you know. Um, but it was uh, last year, around mid, mid, late, three quarters of the way through last year, uh, that the city actually uh, supported, the through, through council, the elected council, uh, the declaration of a climate emergency. And I think we were something like the second council in the country or New South Wales to actually do that. Sydney did that after Newcastle did. Newcastle is a really interesting place. Um, I love it dearly, although having been here for nearly 30 years, um, I'm probably still not a local. Fred's just Fred. to say, I'll be back in a bit. Yeah. Um, and, and it's often joked that, you know, you have to have two grandparents buried at Sandgate Cemetery here in Newcastle to be considered a local. I did have family here 150 years ago. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but it is a, it, it's, it, it's a fascinating city and all of those things that you refer to there with environmental issues. You know, we have the CSIRO here. We have uh, NIA, which is an incredible environmental research organisation based at the University of Newcastle. Um, The council has supported a a massive solar farm and, you know, there are more initiatives coming along online there. We have an electric vehicle program. And so we have, you know, on the one hand, yes, we're the world's largest coal export port. And on the other hand, on the ground, we're, we're trying to strive for all of these other um, areas of sustainability that, that will hopefully, you know, hold us in good stead um, into the future. But that's very difficult because, you know, we, we are Newcastle, we're right now, our backyard is the Hunter Valley. Um, and of course, we have the dual situation there of coal mining, but also uh, a beautiful wine country and thoroughbred horse industry. So those things don't necessarily all play well together and how we manage that into the future is is going to be interesting. I think Newcastle's, broadly speaking, mentality, and and I use that as a real generalisation, I think is changing enormously because um, we've seen the city physically change over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and we're starting to see a big change in the population as well, with the city becoming a real education and research town. Um, the the uh, Hunter Medical Research Institute is here and has been for many years, and they just keep getting bigger and better with their seven main research areas in health. Uh, the university, uh, Hunter New England Health, which looks after about a million people between here and the border uh, in New England. And 
We're seeing a change in population as well because Newcastle has been much more affordable than Sydney. So your, your, your artists and creatives and startups more recently, um, you know, young entrepreneurs have been coming here because it's, it's been more affordable for them to get started and, and have a little bit of a go and yet not being so far from Sydney. And that is really changing things. I was referring to changing that mentality a little bit when Newcastle's always had a little bit of a chip on its shoulder because, you know, the little brother to Sydney. And we now have this really incredibly interesting group of dynamic younger, under 40 perhaps, um, entrepreneurs in particular, who are starting amazing businesses here and doing incredible work here. And they're, they're beholden to no one. They're not, they're, they, they, they don't owe the old guard um, who've sort of run the city and the region politically or whatever for, for decades. They, they owe them nothing. They are well-connected and well-educated and well-resourced to be truly independent thinkers and builders. And I love them. I'm, I'm all about them. They're, they're the ones that I absolutely throw my, my faith in because I just think that they're amazing. And their outlook is just so much more positive. I have often said that there is no one more down on Newcastle than a Novocastrian. Yeah, Novocastrians will kick the shit out of them. Don't you dare do it, Kate Carruthers. Don't you dare diss the city. But here in Newcastle, we'll say any sort of terrible things about it that we like. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I remember the first time I defended this city was before I'd even moved here. But I had done a bit of work. I was working for a record company in Sydney and looking after um, a radio station here with their new releases. And, you know, here's the new Billy Joel and Michael Jackson, whatever it was, trying to get them to play the records. And so I was coming up and down and thinking, wow, this is a... This is a great place. I really like this place. And then I went off to work in radio myself in Hobart and I was reading what was then a very brand new Who Weekly magazine. Remember when they launched and it was all to be artsy black and white photographs? And someone had written something in there about Newcastle and the stinking steel city. And I just thought, oh, my God. Oh, my, yeah, BHP for sure. But it's an amazing. And that was the first time I got my cranky pants on to defend, to defend the city. Um, by writing a, a letter in response to that. But um, I, what I strive to try to do is encourage people to try to see this city the way that I do because are we perfect? Hell no. Are we amazing and do we have an incredible future should we choose to accept it? Oh, God, yeah. Well, I was, I was really impressed by the or everybody that I met when I was up there. They were all talking about the future uh, as mm. against the past. So they were not so much focused on trying to preserve the coal industry and they were trying to reposition and re reimagine the future, which I thought was really mm. healthy uh, and, and a really nice, mm. uh, made for a really nice vibe. So that mm. was really interesting. And it, it is. And coal is really difficult. You know, it is a major employer um, and a major economic driver for the state and for the country. Um, but we do all need to... He, he's, he's not just the politician in me, because I sincerely believe this. We really do need to strive on that so-called just transition to make sure that all of those families and those small towns and their economies and their kids um, have opportunity, genuine 
opportunity. Mm. And we need to figure out how to do that because at some point, whether we like it or not, the world is going to stop buying alcohol. Pretty but, soon, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's potentially billions of dollars worth of stranded assets. But, you know, anyway, that's something, that's some, a problem, I guess, for, you know, much smarter people than me to figure out. Mm-hmm. I don't know about smarter people than you. I think <laughs> people who are in positions of power, not necessarily smarter. Here's a question for you. And yes. We need to think about wrapping up soon, but yep. I'm, I'm going to give you a metaphorical or, or it's, it's an imaginary magic wand. Okay. If you could fix one thing in the world, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Do I have to choose just one, Annie? If I could fix just one thing. Um, somewhere I think it would come back to what I was talking about earlier with forgiveness and kindness. And, you know, I don't think that... Um, Nurturing those qualities in people at any level um, is a negative thing or that it's anything to be ashamed of. And I often think about, you know, when I watch the Barneys that go on politically, whether it's at my level or it's at the federal level, and think what a waste of energy and time that is just to want to beat each other up for getting yourself re-elected or, you know, whatever your, whatever your purpose is. I think my, my magic wand would be about kindness and, and forgiveness. And, yeah, we've got so much to do. We've just got to get on with it. And that is a really good note to end on. So thank you so much, Carol Duncan. Thank you so much for joining me, Annie Parker. And thank you for listening.